Today's reading is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It can be found in page 1178 in the Church Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thanks be to God. Well, hopefully you've had a chance to um, read through this short letter of uh, Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi and been able to discuss it in your home groups on the Thursday evening. Hopefully one of the themes that came out of the letter for you that was quite clear from these pages was that of joy. Joy, or the, the verb rejoice, appears 14 times in these couple of pages. Paul describes the Philippians as my joy and crown. He talks about his own rejoicing. He encourages the Philippians to rejoice. And as he prays for them, he says he always prays with joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians, uh, along with love and peace and patience and kindness and all the others. And yet in many churches and in many Christians, it is sadly not particularly obvious. People are far more happy sometimes to, to criticise and moan and be jealous than actually rejoice in each other. I think sometimes we find it easier to dwell on our differences than actually rejoice in what we have in common. And maybe the reason for that is that instead of looking at the work that the Lord is doing in others and how he looks at them, we tend to look at other people in terms of how they compare to us. You know, if they don't match up to our expectations or do things differently or think things differently from us, then um, instead of being a joy to us, they sometimes become an irritation. Well, I hope as we work our way through this letter over the next few weeks, we will find a greater joy in Jesus Christ and we will become more thankful for each other. Hopefully we'll be able to say it's the same as uh, Paul does at the beginning of this letter. I thank my God every time I remember you. Well, the question we're going to look at this morning is, what is it that makes Paul so joyful about the Philippian believers? What is it that makes him have such strong feelings for them? And how can that help us feel more strongly about our fellow believers, whether here in the church or in, in other churches? One thing it doesn't seem to depend on here is, is Paul's circumstances. He's uh, writing from prison, in chains, probably in Rome, um, with his life in danger. So it's not a superficial joy that's um, 
determined by his life situation at that time. Now, the reason Paul gives in these opening verses for the joy with which he's able to pray for the Philippians is, as it says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of your partnership in the gospel. This word here, koinonia, translated partnership, is often used as business partnerships, and I know some of you here will be in business partnerships, will know um, how the, the passion and vision you share for your business or practice can forge very strong bonds with your fellow partners. These days, the term partner is also used in the context of uh, personal relationships, a couple who may um, live together, uh, may not be married, but share their lives together. It's often translated as fellowship, a good Christian term, and uh, one we use quite frequently in the questionnaire we gave out to people at Cornerstone recently. One of the questions was asking them about what do you find so important and valuable about um, about um, Cornerstone. And many of them pointed to the fellowship, fellowship that they enjoyed together. But even when in a church, fellowship can become simply you know, having a cup of coffee together after the church service, having a meal together, talking about the weather, talking about the football. But the genuine Christian fellowship or partnership that Paul is talking about here goes much deeper. Now, the heart of this word is sharing. It's having something in common with somebody else. Now, I share many different interests with uh, many different people here. Some of you may have uh, had the, uh, the great pleasure of being um, born and brought up in Essex, like myself. Uh, I might share that with you. You may be interested in sport. You might even uh, support the same football team. Who knows? Um, maybe you uh, like my taste in music bands. Maybe it's the same sense of humour, etc., uh, etc. Et but actually, none of those are really crucial to our relationship. What Paul is talking about here that he shares with the Philippians is something that binds them so closely together that even when they're apart, he still has these strong feelings for them. But what is that? What does it mean to be a gospel partner? Well, the first thing is to share in God's grace. Verse 7 there says, All of you share in God's grace with me. The gospel is the good news of God's grace. It's the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it's by God's grace that we, each one of us here, can benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we can experience forgiveness. We can experience new life. And God's grace reminds us that we haven't somehow earned our right to become partners, you know, as you would in a firm of lawyers or architects, working your way up from the the lowly ranks to be offered the prize of partner. He has enabled us to believe in the good news and to invest our lives in its growth. If you'd just like to keep your finger in Philippians for a moment, and let's turn with me to, um, to the book of Acts. And we'll just see here how Philip first arrived in Philippi, and um, how God showed his grace towards the Philippians. Chapter 16, verse um, 9, page 1111, Church Bibles. Verse 9, there it says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, let's see what happens after that. After Paul had seen the vision... 
We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, there's obviously not enough um, Jews there to have their own synagogue, so it says, it says in verse 13, on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So as Paul preached the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That is the amazing power of God's grace. We don't really want to hear, we don't really want to believe this message. You know, we'd rather just carry on with our lives. Now, after all, Lydia here appears to be a successful businesswoman. You know, she worships God, it says, in her, her own way. Her life may be okay, but she's about to have her heart open to trust in Jesus Christ as the way to God. And to have her heart open is not just to be overcome suddenly emotionally, it's to understand with her whole being that this message, this gospel, is true. Conversion of the um, Philippian jailer that follows here in Acts um, is an even more remarkable story. If you look at all the events that God uses to allow them, him and his family to be converted, it is quite amazing. First, there's this incident with um, Paul and um, Silas, verse 16 onwards, with the slave girl, which causes them to be put in prison and to be flogged. But that doesn't stop them singing and praying at midnight to God and the other inmates are listening to them. Then there was a violent earthquake that caused all the prison doors to fly open. But Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners, which is quite remarkable when you think about it, surely you'd have thought, let's just get out of here. But no doubt they were impressed by what they heard. They remained where they were. And all of this led to the jailer trembling, falling at Paul's feet and asking him, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? To which they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And it finishes there in verse 34 of chapter 16 with the jailer bringing them into his house and feeding them and it says he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. They have become partners in the gospel by God's grace. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi many years later and thinks of Lydia, thinks of the uh, Philippian jailer, his household, he's filled with joy at the work of God's grace in these people's lives. Notice the the first thing that Lydia and the Philippian jailer do is invite Paul and Silas into their homes. They want to, to get to know them better because they know they share something that is so important. Partnership or fellowship is not a goal in itself. It comes from what we have in common. So it makes no sense to focus on having fellowship, but the joy of fellowship comes from focusing on what we have in common, that God has worked in us by his grace. We have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what makes a gospel partnership different from a business partnership is that in a business partnership, the partners are effectively at the same level. They've reached that level. They're treated equally. If they don't pull their weight, then you know, they may be encouraged to leave. But 
we become gospel partners at the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the moment we commit our lives to him. And that means that amongst gospel partners, there'll be those who are mature in their faith, who've been living the life for years, and there'll be those who are just babes in Christ, who have much to learn and to grow. And Paul here is equally joyful about all of them. Look at verse 4, back in Philippians 1. It says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Or in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If we put our trust in him, we all share in God's grace. We are all partners in the gospel. Well, the next thing we share as gospel partners is... We share in the confidence that God will complete the work that he's begun in us. Verse 6, Paul writes, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the first thought we may have when we read this is, well, what does it mean to be complete? You know, is there a danger that we will somehow not be complete? That we will miss out on the prize of heaven, that we still need to improve our lives if we're to cross some sort of threshold, if we're going to be good enough. As we use the Commonwealth Games uh, analogy, we've made it into the English team, but we're not sure if we're going to win a medal, we're not sure if we're even going to make it into the final. We may end up with Delhi Belly and get dragged from the pool before we even throw up, you know. Or the X Factor, if you're fans of that, we get told by Simon Simon Cowell in uh, Marbella, Bad news, I'm afraid. You're not going to the finals. No, it doesn't. If God has done a work of grace in us, we belong to him. We are accepted by him. We are considered righteous in his sight. That work of grace is finished. And that is why the form of address that Paul uses here is to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, literally to all the holy ones. If we are a Christian, then we are part of God's holy people. We, we are one of his saints. It's not the Roman Catholic Church that makes people saints. It's God when he bestows his grace on us. And there are two mistakes I think we can make when we think of God working in us, doing that work of completion, becoming more like Christ. And the first of those, I think, is it just seeing that it doesn't matter. It's, I think it's um, maybe a mistake of evangelicals that we focus so much on the moment of conversion that we assume, well, that, that's fine now. You know, as long as we've got our get-into-heaven-free card, then um, you know, we can just come along to church, help out a little bit, and um, you know, Bob's your uncle. That is not gospel partnership. That is, that is like having a gym membership and not really going to the gym and not getting fitter because you're not making use of it. You're not growing. This whole letter is about contending for the gospel. It's being prepared to not only believe on Christ, it says later, but suffer for him, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a growing commitment to the gospel that is the proof that God has begun a work in us and will complete it. One mistake is to assume it doesn't matter, our, our growth, our maturity. The other mistake is to worry that we will never make it. Holiness is a process which can be very slow. It can be very depressing at times as we look at the the sin that is still in our lives. 
But God still looks at us with joy because he can see the finished article. And once then it's right for us to look at our imperfect lives and be frustrated, after all, if we weren't frustrated with sin in us, then, uh, you know, we would be of a concern to God. But we mustn't think that we are only in God's favour when we become the finished article. He loves us as a work in progress. He knows what we will turn out to be. And so that phrase in there, until the day of Christ, is not meant as a sort of you know, ultimatum, a final cut-off point. If you haven't reached a certain level of maturity by then, it's too late. No, it's having that day in mind, being focused on that day as we live out our Christian lives, in the decisions we make, in the choices we make, the priorities we set, knowing that on that day we will be made complete. And if you are worried about this, whether you'll be growing, then that is really proof in itself that you are saved, that you have nothing to worry about. But also note where Paul's confidence actually for the Philippians comes from. It is not in the fact that he's taught them well, that he's done a few sessions with them. It is in God. Paul says that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That work of sanctification, of becoming like Christ, is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so what we need to balance here is a confidence in God that he will do what he has promised and a desire and passion on our side to actually become more like Christ, whatever the cost, even if it means suffering, as we'll look at next time. It may be helpful just to turn over to page um, to chapter 3, verse 10, and just see Paul's passion and desire to become more like Christ. This is somebody who's mature in his faith, a model apostle, and yet look what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you are somebody who is um, putting off making a decision for Christ, because you don't think you'll be able to live up to what is expected of you, that you won't be able to, to grow in your faith and be reassured that it is God who will be changing you. You need the desire to want to be changed but if you've got that, if you want to be changed, if you want to live for Christ then what is stopping you? What is holding you back? Coming back to Gospel Partnership, Paul's desire for his own Christ-likeness is matched by his desire for the Philippians to become more like Christ. And he realises that he has a role to play in that. If he's a partner in the gospel, then he needs to pray for his other partners. And it's interesting that even though Christianity is about loving God, it's about loving others, it's very possible, isn't it, to live a a self-centred Christian life, to be so focused on our relationship with God that we forget about how those around us are, are doing in their relationship with God. Which brings us on to the third point, which is to share a passion for growth in each other. Paul says in verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Behind the ministry of the great gospel workers is a ministry that is just as important, that is the gospel, a ministry of prayer. William Carey, the great um, pioneer missionary, may be well known to many, but um, not so well known was his sister was bedridden for years, but he used to spend hours each day interceding for her brother's ministry. And much of this letter from Paul to the Philippians is thanking them for the way in which they have supported his gospel ministry, be it through money, be it through sending gospel workers, be it through their prayers. And as the pastors of this church, the success of our ministry depends on your prayers. I'm not embarrassed about asking you for your prayers because I know how much I'm dependent on them. I'm sure Jeff would, would share that. It was something uh, you committed to do at my induction service, to pray for me, as I committed to do for you, to pray for you regularly. And when we welcome new members into this church, we commit to pray for them. And we look forward to doing that next week as we welcome uh, ten new members into our church. This is not an LCBC thing. This is a biblical thing, to pray for our fellow gospel partners. But how do we pray for each other? Do we only pray when uh, we are aware of their physical needs. Well, Paul's prayer here in verse 9 to 11 is a prayer that we can pray for anybody at any time. It's just as relevant for the young believer as the one who is mature in Christ. Let's just have a look at it, verse 9 to 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We've said that we're confident that God will complete his work, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in that. We need to pray that he will complete that work. That is how God works. We don't We don't understand exactly how prayer works, but um, we know that it is essential to the growth of every believer. And so, when we pray for each other, let's pray that God will complete the work he has begun. Let's just have a look at the specific things that he prays for in this prayer. He prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. As it goes on to say, so that you may be able to discern what is best, not just what is good, but what is best. We can do many apparently loving acts, but they may not all be what is best for that person. It seems here to be what he's saying is a a greater ability to see and to respond to people's needs. As I say, there are often many ways of responding to somebody's need. It may be offering a word of sympathy, um, maybe offering practical help, maybe to encourage, it may be to challenge or to rebuke. And to get that right is not easy, and we probably would naturally opt for the easiest option, wouldn't we, to say a word of sympathy if somebody is struggling with something. But that may not always be the best thing. Maybe that may encourage a sort of sense of self-pity in that person, when we should be challenging them more. This discernment that Paul is praying for the Philippians is about choices between right and wrong. It's about being wise and unwise. It's about developing the mind of Christ so that we do what is best. If the Philippians all had perfect discernment, then they wouldn't have any disagreements, would we? Which we'll read about later in in this letter. 
Think how smoothly our church would run if we all shared perfect discernment. To have depth of insight is to know how best to pray for others. And that's often not something that comes naturally, which is why Paul is praying for it, for the Philippians. He knows that if they all had that greater depth of insight, that they will be a powerful force for the gospel. Well, as I come to an end here, if you are a Christian here this morning, I do hope that um, as we've read this passage together, God would have been giving you a greater joy in your fellow believers, a joy in your partners. I hope that you'll be able to look at all of them as partners in the gospel, as those who have benefited from God's grace, as those in whom we can be confident that God will complete his work. And I hope that our love for God and our love for others will grow in greater knowledge and greater depth of insight. To be a partner in the gospel is to want to see people come under the life-changing influence of the gospel. But it's also to want to see those already in Christ, as it says here, be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, be filled with the right fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God.